on this episode of Backstories. Both of our authors were influenced by a very famous children's librarian. Was she a mother? Was she, what brought her into children's? She died only at age 42. Whoa. And even that is a story in of itself. They just keep getting made into movies. He would whip out one of his stories about this little rat boy. What's up with that? Hi, welcome back to Backstories, the podcast where we talk about some of our favorite creators, their histories, and sort of what influenced them to create the works that they did. This is brought to you by the Johnson County Public Library. My name's Amy. I work at our White River Branch. And today I'm here with Darcy. She's also at our White River Branch. Hi, Darcy. Hi. Today we kind of are doing a little children's extravaganza. Besides talking about the two children's creators that we picked, both of our authors were influenced by a very famous children's librarian named Anne Carol Moore. We kind of have a third person brought into the mix of our creative backstories, so I hope that you will find that interesting as well. As librarians, we certainly find her interesting, so (laughs) she's definitely different, (laughs) as are our authors. Who are you going to talk to us about today, Dars? Today, um, I will be talking about Margaret Wise Brown, prolific children's author of picture books. Good night, room. Good Mm -hmm. night, moon. <laughs> My son's 13, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, Good Night Moon is one of her popular ones. Also, Runaway Bunny, another uh-huh. very popular one. So, we'll talk a little bit about the stories behind both of those books, too. <laughs> was she a mother? Was she, what brought her into children's books? She was not. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> she had a very interesting life, like from childhood on through. Adulthood. Unfortunately, she died only at age 42. Whoa. And even that is a story in of itself. So she grew up around Long Island. She loved nature, which has had a big influence on all of her books, being about a lot of animals, typically. One interesting thing of growing up in Long Island, she ruled this group of neighborhood kids. (laughs) And (laughs) she had a very strong personality, it seemed. But she convinced them that she owned the woods. And they had to pay her an entrance fee if they wanted to go into the woods. That's <laughs> genius. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of my like son is needs a good to get on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is definitely like how her childhood seemed based off the things I read. <laughs> uh, she went to boarding schools. Her family was actually pretty wealthy. That helped her a lot throughout life. <laughs> she didn't have the greatest home. Her mom was often like not really around or able to do things for her but she was really close to her dad she went to a boarding school and she almost wasn't allowed to graduate because she snuck out and walked four miles to a local diner (laughs) 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 because she really wanted a grilled cheese sandwich and a milkshake well yeah yeah and the diner wasn't open and she had to walk all the way back (laughs) (laughs) i guess she couldn't check yelp for the hours (laughs) true yeah this is what like in the 40s i think She attended college at Hollins College. She really loved, like, sports and extracurriculars. She rode horses. She almost got married after college to George Armistead. She overheard him talking with her father about how to control her. (gasps) And and then she broke (laughs) off the wedding. (laughs) So, you know, that's fun. (laughs) So after college is when she moved to New York to try and be a writer. 
she didn't want to be a children's book author. She wanted to write adult novels. Mm -hmm. She tried for a long time, and they never got published. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That comes up a lot on this podcast. Really? (laughs) (laughs) There was, like, throughout her life, it seems like she was kind of embarrassed that she was just quote a children's book author oh even though she's now like one of the most famous and has made incredible books she was always trying to write something else thinking she wasn't sophisticated enough for it she got a job actually working at a school though and that was kind of like how things started off for her children's book career they wanted to make their own textbooks that would actually show women as equals. Ooh, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, the actually the founder of the college seems really interesting. I hadn't heard of her before. It was just like a small school in New York where she was, Margaret was a teaching assistant for a classroom of eight-year-olds. So when they were making their new textbooks, Margaret jumped in on it and started to help with that. And the textbooks kind of were like, they'd have poems in the beginning and stories throughout. They weren't your typical textbooks. Oh, so it was, well, they just put the English part in with everything else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that was like good for Margaret to start her career because she was able to do some actual like fiction. And she was able to use the kids in her class as subjects to test out her work on. So she did that. And then from there, she just started to write children's books with uh, someone at the school. And she sent some to a Harper editor who published them. Wow. Yeah. That was easy. Yeah, it kind (laughs) of took off from there. (laughs) One thing about Margaret Wise Brown is she had a lot of interesting relationships throughout her career and her life. So we talked about the one that she broke off. Yes. And then she, it's like she was kind of a hopeless romantic, I think. But she also had a lot of problems in love. Oh. She (laughs) fell in love with this man named Bill Gaston. And her friends did not like him. They thought I'm he singing too the Gaston much. song in my head. <laughs> I mean, it's Beauty kind and of the Beast in this one, actually. <laughs> he does have a bit of that Beauty and the Beast Gaston in him. <laughs> they dated for over a year when one day he came to her and was like, Hey, by the way, I just got married and I have a kid on the way with someone else. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then he was like, but let's still see each other. Let's not. <laughs> she was like, let's not at first. And then she kind of changed her mind oh. and couldn't really give up on Bill Gaston. But through Bill, she also met her other kind of like law, lifelong lover who was Blanche Ulrich, mm-hmm. who goes by Michael Strange. Wait, that sounds so familiar. She was famous kind of I guess for the time she married John Barrymore that's it mm -hmm, and published a book of erotic poems (laughs) (laughs) Um, so she was actually 20 years older than Margaret oh another interesting thing about her she was named the most beautiful woman in Paris decades (gasps) before they met that's nice yeah she was also a registered communist and a member of the America First Committee (laughs) 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 so another really interesting woman Started off as good friends, eventually fell in love. Michael also did not treat her great. She was really bad about putting down her career as a children's book author, which Margaret already felt bad about. So that was sad. And then Michael got diagnosed with leukemia. And kind of like as her life went on, 
she became more religious and decided that she didn't want to be in a relationship with Margaret anymore. Mm. So Margaret, it like tore her up and she was really depressed by this. And in her last moments, the doctors refused to let Margaret in her room. (gasps) She didn't even get to be with like her lifelong love at the end of her life. Yeah, and it's like it seemed like Margaret did so much for her, and was always like put. She Michael was known to like have outbursts and mm-hmm. kind of was like rough to people, <laughs> and then Margaret was the one soothing everything over and like making excuses for her all the time. I wonder if that that seems to be like a pattern also. With, it, yeah, with Gaston. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Margaret liked the bad boys yeah. and girls always like found the good in them but actually like right before she died she had fallen in love again by someone who went by the name pebble (laughs) which i love (laughs) i love the nickname pebble i think it's so cute that is cute and pebble actually seemed okay but they fell in love and they were like gonna travel the world together on his boat and she went to paris started to feel sick there So she went to the doctor, she had appendicitis, she had to get her appendix removed. So she got her appendix removed, she was recovering in the hospital in Paris, and then the day she was supposed to be released, she, the doctor was like, how are you feeling? And she goes, great, throws off the bed sheet, kicks up her leg, and as she does that, it dislodges a blood clot in her leg. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, that goes, like, straight to her heart or lungs or something and kills her immediately. Oh, my God. I know. That is... So she had a very sad... Like, right when she finally found someone who loved her and treated her well. Yes. And she was only 42. That's crazy. It was so sad. But in terms of her children's book author, (laughs) things went a little more successfully for her. Good night, Moon. (laughs) (laughs) Runaway Bunny, which I mentioned, she thought of while she was on a ski slope, thinking about this old French poem that was about a woman who was threatening to leave her lover by turning into different animals. But he kept coming back and finding ways to turn into that animal and find her. Now I have to find this poem. I know. (laughs) But Margaret was thinking about this poem and it like reminded her of leaving the nest and like universal themes that children can relate to, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to go somewhere and find something new or just that stretch of Independent from their parents. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So she kind of took that idea and turned it into something that would work for kids of a little bunny who's like, I'm going to go away. The mom's like, I'll find you. <laughs> um, and then with Goodnight Moon, she, uh, there was one of her textbooks that she had still worked on later in life. Uh, she refound a poem that she put in it. And in this poem, she was having a dream about a room or so in one of her textbooks, she refound one of her poems that was about her, her boarding school and all of her possessions there. And that night, when she refound the poem, she had a dream about her neighbor's room. And the neighbor had bright green walls, Aww. yellow trim, red That's furniture. That's the good night moon room. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So she rewrote the story that was originally the poem into Good Night Moon based off her dream. 
and then immediately called Ursula Nordstrom to read it to her. And she was like, this is the perfect story. Oh. And then because she was so inspired by her neighbor in the dream, she ended up painting her own apartment green and yellow with a red velvet bed. <laughs> but... Take notes, interior designers. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. I like, I like the green rooms. walls. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Maybe not yellow trim. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's got a little bit of like a Christmas thing going yeah. on. I don't know if I want that year round. <laughs> and Carol Moore, this children's librarian, actually the first children's librarian, and mm-hmm. she just like invented children's libraries. So she did great things. Like she made tables that children could sit at she got books published in different languages so kids could read them in their native language she did a lot of good things but she did not like margaret wise brown (laughs) and she did not like her books she actually banned it from being on her shelves and she was at a big library yeah new york public library she was at the big library right (laughs) (laughs) So it was actually off of New York Public Library shelves until 1972 because of the influence she was banned that she for had. like 30 years or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she uh, and Carol Moore retired from the library in like the 40s <laughs> because she was so influential. It just didn't show up until 1972. And I, what I saw was that Moore was kind of like a lover of fairy tales and fables. And Brown, you know, liked to do rhymes and speaking to children in their own language. They never saw eye to eye. And Anne Carrera Moore said, Goodnight Moon was an unbearably sentimental piece of work. But, okay. <laughs> it's just saying goodnight to your stuff. Right, I don't really see that. <laughs> Especially like, Nowadays, sometimes I do run across a children's book, and I'm like, wow, this is so sappy and sentimental. Yes. I would never ban it from our shelves, no. but it's, like, compared to now and then, that's just such a simple, like, classic book. It yeah, feels. it doesn't seem, it seems very real. It does. Just saying goodnight to your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, but Anne Carol Moore did not think so. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, another interesting thing with Anne Carol Moore is the Book Week ceremony at New York Public Library. Margaret went but forgot her invitation at home. So everyone knew her because she's an extremely famous children's author, but they refused to let her enter until all the other guests arrived, even though there were tons of empty seats. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> more than enough. Margaret became very angry and her and her publisher sat on the library steps and had their own book week ceremony on the steps <laughs> of New York Public Library. <laughs> I hope she awarded herself all the awards. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she did. <laughs> I won a Newberry and a Celtic. That is so wild. Yeah, she had a very interesting life. Yes. The author that I'm talking about today is E.B. White, also very famous and very awarded for Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web and Trumpet of the Swan. In fact, Charlotte's Web, very, very regularly, whenever a new list comes out of the best children's books, it's pretty much always number one. So it is considered a huge classic, a really important, I mean, almost everybody's read it. And also Stuart Little, 
as well. And you'll see, too, they just keep getting made into movies. Like, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Both such successful movies. Yes, like first hand-drawn cartoons and then the CGI animation. And then it just keeps going. I mean, it's like it's just one of those things that gets remade all the time because mm-hmm. it's such a core work. E.B. White also did not want to be a children's author. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> I know, and, and he wasn't. He actually was a pretty famous journalist hmm. and essayist. He wrote for United Press and the American Legion News Service in the 20s. He wrote for the Seattle Times. And then when the New Yorker was first founded in 1925, he sent some manuscripts in. Their editor, Catherine, she uh, recommended to the full editor-in-chief and founder that they hire E.B. White. And so he was one of, of course, the first staff of The New Yorker and was very famous and just sort of like one of the core journalists for The New Yorker. He wrote columns, opinion pieces, question and answer pieces, satire he wrote. Mm -hmm. And he and Catherine ended up getting married. Also, and this I did not know, if you have heard of a little uh, grammar guide called Elements of Style, Strunk and White's Elements of Style, E.B. White is the white. So he was so revered in sort of journalism and writing circles that he revised that. And he is now the Strunk and White of Elements of Style. And also a weird thing that I did not know, (laughs) Elements of Style was made into a musical. What? I didn't have a chance to look it up. (laughs) I don't know the plot line. But if you are interested in grammar... Perhaps you would like to listen to the musical of Elements of Style. (laughs) Elements of Style is another thing I feel like librarians I've known throughout my life just love. Yes, it's like this whole grammar, just grammar is just interesting and part of writing. I don't know. Before he started actually writing full children's fiction, he was writing short stories for his nieces and nephews. He had a bunch of nieces and nephews, and he actually said about Stuart Little... Many years ago, I went to bed one night in a railway sleeping car, and during the night I dreamed about a tiny boy who acted rather like a rat. And that's how the story Stuart Little got started. And he actually had that dream in 1926. He would just write dozens of these short stories for his nieces and nephews. He didn't like to make up stories off the top of his head so that when he was with his nieces and nephews and they asked him for a story, he would whip out one of his stories about this little rat boy, (laughs) Stuart. (laughs) It's so interesting how many books come from dreams. Yes, that is another huge thing. Mm -hmm. That comes up almost every week in this podcast as somebody dreams something weird and then it turned into a book. It's funny, another quote about Stewart is, he said that this mouse child is the only fictional figure ever to have honored and disturbed my sleep. In 1935, his wife finally took all of these stories out of the drawer and showed them to another writer at The New Yorker. His name's Clarence Day, and he liked them very much. He asked Catherine to shop them around, but they got turned down. Um, Oxford University Press and Viking Press both turned them down. Catherine was actually, uh, she was the literature editor for The New Yorker, 
but she also did an annual children's book review, and that started in the 30s. And that was around the same time that Ann Carol Moore was developing children's librarianship and children's library services. She really did start what modern children's libraries are like. Yeah. Like you said, the small furniture. She would bring in storytellers. She did over 200 story hours a year, which has mm-hmm. become a pretty much a library standard. It's right. doing story time three times a week. It's very popular. It's really good for kids. We do it for all ages. Well, she started, she really started that. She was one of the first people that thought children should be allowed to check books out. Mm-hmm. Children weren't allowed to take books out of libraries. They weren't allowed to get a card. They weren't allowed to take a book home. And she allowed children to check out the books and take them home. She also started children's literature reviews. She wrote children's book reviews, and I believe that she helped start Hornbook, which, if you aren't a children's librarian, (laughs) is a really huge children's book magazine. And they review all the upcoming books and talk about different things in children's literature. She would read Catherine's columns, of course, about children's books. So she and Catherine had disagreed on books. As we know already, Ann Carol Moore was very opinionated. She actually had a stamp in her desk where she would stamp books that she would get, people would send her to add to the the library. She would stamp them that they were uh, not endorsed by a professional. (laughs) Did you hear that she called books trucks? If when they were bad, like yeah, if she called them bad, she said they were a truck. Do you, did you figure out why? No, I never Same. really saw that. Um, she also, and this is kind of weird, I almost feel bad talking about it, but she also carried a little wooden doll around with her everywhere, uh-huh. and she would bring him out to talk to the kids, right? Like, oh, I have my little, I forget, his name was, I can't remember his name, but she would bring his little, she'd bring this little doll out and be like, oh, hello, hello. Well, she did it to adults, too. She would bring him out in staff <laughs> meetings and be like, oh, I can't remember his name, but she'd be like, oh, like, Henry doesn't like that. Or Honestly, it reminds me of so many people I went to library school with. <laughs> it must be a children's a librarian A children's thing. librarian thing, yeah. <laughs> but her staff, they just couldn't stand the stall. Like, they got yeah. so that they hated him. And one day she left him on a taxi, and they were so happy. <laughs> but Ann Carol Moore actually wrote a children's book about this doll Um, but it was a fantasy it was about him coming to the library at night and all of the characters from the fantasy books trolls and things had also come to life Mm -hmm. but so yes she really did she didn't like to mix fantasy with reality it's Mm -hmm. like either a book was true or it was so crazy that it was it could never be mistaken as true so she didn't like real realistic fiction yeah around all this same time E.B. White wrote an essay about writing for children. He just put a few columns in one of in one of his articles about writing children's books. And Carol Moore saw that article in the New Yorker, and she was so excited that somebody who was so famous in the literary world might write a children's book mm-hmm. that she just immediately wrote a letter to E.B. White and said, oh, please write a book. It will make the library lions roar. Wow. Because the New York Public Library has the two lion statues out front. She characterized those a lot. She often talked about her job between the lions. That was Mm -hmm. a big thing with her. She kept 
writing him letters for several years. She wrote him many letters saying, how's the book coming? How's the book coming? Wow. Like, how's it going? How are you? Are you going to finish it? What's happening? And she, so would she give, was such a fan at first. Well, yeah, because for her, if somebody so revered wrote a children's book and she could attach herself to it, yeah, that would give children's literature even more of a boost and herself as well as being an influencer. Mm -hmm. She really wanted to cultivate him. She considered him her author. I just made air quotes, you guys. <laughs> her author. You can't see him. And then I realized I did it and that was dumb. She wrote him so often that she was just getting on his nerves because he was struggling with writing this book. Like he really did want to write Stuart Little. He was just struggling with it and it took him years and he was doing other things. Catherine, E.B. White's wife, wrote her back saying, you know, I think if we both just relaxed and let him do this at his own pace, that maybe, you know, that would be better. So basically he had his wife like tell her to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work? The actual quote is, I've decided that the less we say, the sooner it will be done. And they said it was delicately hinting that she stopped bothering. <laughs> but I mean she did she wrote him many many letters some of them you can even read online asking him to finish Stuart Little she had been waiting for Stuart Little for seven years that's Ann Carol Moore and she really did claim E.B. White as her writer during that time she had retired but like you said her grip on the power of the New York Public Library children's room oh. had not loosened she would still come to meetings she came to staff meetings, even though she was retired, and she ran those meetings. Wow. Yes, she and her wooden doll. The actual head after her, her name was Frances Clark Sayers, she would try to, like, last minute reschedule the meetings. She wouldn't publish the meeting place. She would last minute move the meeting to a new location, and every time, Anne would find it and show up. <laughs> And yeah, I hate to be the librarian after her. Oh, gosh, I know. And it, Sayers admitted that she found it all but impossible to stand up to Moore, who made her life an absolute hell. And that's a quote. I'm not making air quotes. I'm reading the quotes off my notes. <laughs> <laughs> By refusing to cede control. She hung on to everything. Moore had just got it in her mind that recruiting E.B. White to the world of juvenilia was her final triumph. That was going to be her legacy. It was her book. And then... He finished it. It was picked up to be published by Nordstrom, and Nordstrom sent Anne Carol Moore a galley. And if you don't know what that is, it's an advanced copy of the book. They're sent out a lot of times for publicity to book reviewers and stuff like that. It's like when movie reviewers see a movie for free, you can also, book reviewers get the books early. So Moore read it and hated it. She said, I was never so disappointed in a book in my life. Wow. Was it like the mixing of fantasy and reality, perhaps? Yes. <laughs> she warned that the book must never be published. Oh, my. Yes. She sent E.B. White a 14-page letter. I'm guessing front and back. <laughs> to quote friends. But she sent him a 14-page letter saying it was terrible, it would fail, it would be an embarrassment. Please don't publish it. The Whites threw it away, so the letter is sort of... It's sort of a myth anymore, but six pages of it, of a draft copy, still exist. We do know part of what was said. She said the story was out of hand. It was, Stuart was always staggering in and out of scale. I guess his size 
like was mm-hmm. never consistent. And worse, it blurred reality and fantasy. The two worlds were all mixed up and children would not be able to tell them apart. She said something about it's being written by a sick mind. That's what E.B. White said. So and she thought it was, like, terrible to do that. Yes. And she said, um, I fear Stuart Little will be difficult to place in libraries and schools all over the country. So here's E.B. White with his 14-page letter from arguably still a very powerful person in children's literature. Mm-hmm. And so his quote is, it is unnerving to be told that you're bad for children. <laughs> <laughs> I detected in Miss Moore's letter an assumption that there are rules governing the writing of juvenile literature. Rules as inflexible as the rules for lawn tennis. And this I was not sure of. (laughs) So he, he decided to just shrug it off. He and his wife, they threw the letter out, it was done. And he said, children can sail easily over the fence that separates reality from make believe. They go over it like little spring bucks. A fence that can throw a librarian is nothing to a child. So he absolutely, you know, disagreed. The book was obviously published. Francis Clark Sayers did buy it for the New York Public Library. It was very, very popular, of course, still today. Even schools used it in their classrooms really early on. If you don't remember the end of Stuart Little, well, if you don't remember Stuart Little at all, (laughs) Stuart Little is a mouse. He was born to a human family, although the first edition said born. The further editions did not mention the birth. They just said that Stuart was raised by a human family, so Mm -hmm. he just appeared. That was probably the only concession that E.B. White ever made to any criticism was that was that E.B. was that Stuart's mother did not burr the mouse. But anyway, that would be a little weird. Yes. But also, other than that, he was also not a child. I mean, he was kind of born an adult mouse, oh. kind of, like, and he wore regular clothes, and he, he never had, like, a childhood. He was mm-hmm. just, like, this little mouse man. And in the book, he has lots of adventures. He's still childlike, mm-hmm. but he's just very independent. Like, it's not like he was born and, like, you know, babied and rocked to sleep. But, yeah. like, he was born, he put on pants, he went out in the world. <laughs> 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 and the end of the book... Um, he's fallen in love with a bird. Oh. Her name's Margolo. And she flies away. And Stuart gets in his little Stuart mouse car and drives off to find her. He has a toy car that he drives. If you remember the movie that was the more modern movie, he drives around in a little car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, That's what I keep yes, thinking of. Yes, that's a, that is a Stuart little thing. He drives off to find her, and that's the end of the book. Well, different teachers in the middle grades were using the book in their classrooms and they would have their kids write a new ending. If you thought the ending was kind of sad or whatever, you know, write a new ending. A lot of the classrooms were sending these to E.B. White. So it was sort of like the classroom exercise was that they would write this, they would write the ending and then you'd mail it off. And he would read these and he would say, well, it really seems to me kids can easily understand the difference between fantasy and reality because it's like they not only can understand it reading it they can also write it themselves so that was another i guess like burn on ann carol moore his next book of course was charlotte's web which was also a classic charlotte's web deals with of course the theme of death and different attitudes towards death it's about a spider she has her web in a barn And in the barn is a little piglet named Wilbur. 
Wilbur doesn't know it yet, but it turns out he's, after he wins, like, the fair contest, he's going to, of course, be slaughtered for bacon. Mm -hmm. And so Charlotte starts weaving messages in her web to save Wilbur's life. So it's sort of a meditation on how how Wilbur is terrified of death. He thinks it's going to be the end of the whole world. Some of the other farm animals have different kind of philosophies. And then Charlotte herself, the spoiler alert if you haven't read Charlotte's Web, Charlotte actually, because spiders don't live very long, she actually dies at the end of the book. But Mm -hmm. all of her children live. And her kind of her final words were about her legacy and her children. And so it really, besides just being a book about, I mean, there's so much you can teach with this book, so many themes. Um, But one of them was, was death. And so that was sort of risky as well but it was also very well received. Then he also wrote Trumpet of the Swans, which is very good, also used in classes. All of his books won awards. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess he kind of got the, not the last laugh, I don't even know what to say. His editor was also Ursula Nordstrom, who was, of course, Margaret Weiss Brown's editor. Mm -hmm. She said, this is a quote from her about watching Ann Carol Moore stand in the way of Stuart Little She said, it was like watching a horse fall down, its spindly legs crumpling beneath its great weight. Wow, Ursula. Yes, which was, I mean, and that was kind of sad because, I mean, we can drag Ann Kelsey Moore for having these, like, what we see as weird opinions. Right. But they were her opinions, and she did do a lot for children's. Yeah, she did a lot of really, really good things. Yes. It was just she was so inflexible on the whole fantasy and reality thing. Yeah. Here we are now where we have alternate histories, and we have all kinds of crazy children's books mm-hmm. where with talking animals, and we have, like, Harry Potter, where sometimes he's in the magical world and sometimes he's in the regular world. I think it has been proven that kids can sort that out. (laughs) And isn't it like, I think Charlotte's Web, maybe it's too little, is like the number seven most checked out book from New York Public Library now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Goodnight Moon didn't make the list, but then they added like a little extra being like, this should have made the list, but we had it banned for too long. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't had enough time to like rack up. Right. The extra checkouts. Like, the 30 years we didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it would be interesting um, to see a list of all the books that she stamped that weren't, yeah, um, weren't recommended by an expert. It would be interesting. She's an interesting person, but our authors are also really interesting people who lived crazy lives. When E.B. White met Catherine at The New Yorker, she was married, and they had a huge affair. Yes, and then she got divorced to marry E.B. White, so that was a big that was a big New Yorker scandal. Mm-hmm. And even today, The New Yorker, it's still considered, you know, a very kind of upper-class literary erudite magazine. And I think at the time, I mean, even at the time in New York City, I think that's another reason why maybe Ann Carroll Moore wanted to get in those circles yeah. was because it's had that sort of upper crust adult, it was, you know, it's very adult magazine. They had mm-hmm. articles joking around about sex lives and, you know, it was, it was, it was like a big deal. Yeah. Margaret Wise Brown was probably dying to get in. Yeah, that, that was would, her dream. Yeah, she should have written journalism for New Yorker. Yeah. So it's that whole time period, I think, is interesting in literature as a whole. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Parker, if you don't know who Dorothy Parker is, she's um, a very sassy uh, woman's essayist. She reviewed children's books 
for the New Yorker for one of their annual children's books roundups. She reviewed Winnie the Pooh. Aww. She did not like it. She made a joke about how when Pooh repeats all of his, like, you know, chum, chum, chummy and hun, hun, honey and, you know, Uh all the little funny things that Pooh says, she said that it made this weed a vomit. (laughs) 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 So that's kind of, I think, just the tone sometimes in The New Yorker about children's literature was probably pretty bad. So the fact that one of their writers was going to write a children's book was, was fascinating. In case you thought that children's books and children's librarians were boring, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) They were not. There were scandals and there were lovers and there were women carrying around dolls and using them as puppets. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to this episode of Backstories. On the next episode of Backstories. Upcoming, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about Perry Mason. Uh, We may talk a little bit more about some science fiction, some horror, and uh, maybe the movie The Crow. So stay tuned and thank you so much for listening. Backstories is a production of Indiana's Johnson County Public Library.